Hey everyone, welcome to Way of Life Podcast, where we firmly believe that everyone picks a way in life and what way you pick is extremely important and directly affects how you live. In this podcast, we seek to interview people from all around Australia and beyond on life's most important topics. Whether you're a Christian, a skeptic, or someone with a whole heap of questions, this podcast is for you. My name is Matt, a pastor living in Brisbane, Australia. This is Way of Life Podcast. How you doing, Adam? Good, good. It's been a, been a good week. Yeah? Yes. Um, yeah, how was your week? And I wonder if you could tell us a little, just a little bit about yourself. Give us like a one minute download. What do you do? What's your background? Sure. Uh, my week was spent wiping boogies from all three of my children's noses because <laughs> they were all sick. They turned a corner yesterday. Praise the Lord. Yep. Um, a little bit about me. So I put my faith in Jesus at the age of 19. I'm now 37. Uh, a few years after that, I got the call to ministry. So did my Bachelor of Theology at Malian Theological College in Brisbane. Then went over to the United States and pursued my Master's and PhD at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, married to Sarah yep. for nine years now. And we have three kids, age three, two, and seven months. Wow. That's awesome. So there you've you studied for quite a while. A long time. Now. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> what do you do now? What uh, occupies your time? Yes, yeah, so I'm now a lecturer of biblical studies at, at um, New Life College in Rabina. Oh, cool. And um, so you, so for the people here that don't know you, you wrote your PhD in the book of Revelation, hence why we're chatting about this a bit tonight. That is correct. <laughs> so it was specifically the sexual immorality language in the book of Revelation. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, I love the book of Revelation. And so that's my jam. That's it. <laughs> well, let's dive straight into it, I reckon, um, because it's no small topic to cover. Um, I, I, I doubt we'll get through all of it anyway, but at least we'll start some conversations, I'm hoping. Um, so I guess part of why I personally wanted to do this and why other people, like I thought it'd be helpful for other people in a myriad of different reasons is that in terms of the book of Revelation and how I've even been pitching this podcast is that it's a pretty wacky book. Like particularly in uh, our modern day, we're kind of you're like, what happened there? Like most of the New Testament I understand. And then you get to the book of Revelation, you're just like, what? <laughs> like this is a really interesting book and I have no idea what to do with it. And I guess my experience growing up, um, I grew up in probably more Pentecostal churches. I'm not saying all of them would be wacky in this sense, but they they had like a weekend where they had this one guy that went through the full book of Revelation and then they said, uh, this church or this person or this number meant this and this was the Soviet Union and this was like Hitler and all that kind of stuff. And so for me, it's kind of like, I just, I kind of want to know overall what's, what's going on and I want other people to understand this book, uh, how at least how you understand it to, to be uh, meant and what it was actually written for. Because when I went to college, it was I found that it was actually a really beautiful book. It was really amazing once you kind of actually got all that out of the way and you kind of saw it for what it really was. So I wondered if you could maybe start there with, um, I, th I think like any book in the Bible or any book in general, you want to know who wrote it um, and who it was written to. Um, so wondered if you might be able to give us a little a bit of a download on that. Oh yeah, that, that those, those should be the quick, quick, uh, <laughs> quick answers. 
Um, so the one who wrote it, it's stated at the very beginning is John. Uh, church tradition says it's John the Apostle. I adhere to that. Um, most evangelical Christians adhere to that. Uh, some have suggested it was a different John, maybe John the Elder. Uh, and then the majority of, of critical scholarship says it was just somebody we don't know who, who it was. Um, yeah. But there's a lot of affinities between Revelation and the Gospel of John yeah. and First John that lead me to believe that it was it was the Apostle. Um, what's really important to note is even though John penned it, the the actual revelation or the unveiling came to him through angels sometimes, Jesus sometimes, but ultimately from God. So yeah. this is one of those books where you really can say God is the author, this was given by God. We believe all scripture was given by God, but we have it stated in the text that it was given by God yeah. uh, to John. And then it's clearly in the in the in the text it says it was written to seven different churches. Yep. Um, in chapters two and uh, two and three. But when you read the the messages to the seven churches, it's also very clearly intended for any Christian for everyone at the very end of every church, it's whoever has an ear to hear, mm. let him hear. And so the idea is, Hey, whoever is reading this, whoever is listening, if it's, if it's read out loud, mm. you need to pay attention because this is for you as we're going to find out. Shortly. Yeah. Yeah. Now I want to pick up on that, um, in a minute, but when, when abouts was it written? Um, uh, like how old, was it like how far away from when Jesus was around? Yeah, there's the problem with dating it. So the first century for sure, everybody's pretty much in agreement sometime in the first century. Yeah. But it's really difficult to narrow down an actual date because there aren't any, there aren't any real clear cultural or time markers in the book to latch onto to say, okay, this lets me know it was this period. Depending how you interpret portions of it. So if you understand uh, Babylon, the prostitute as Rome, uh, many people would date it to around 90, uh, definitely after 70 uh, AD, which is the fall of Jerusalem, usually in the 90s. Uh, if you think the beast is Nero, you're going to date it to late 60s. If you think the beast is Domitian, you're going to date it somewhere in the mid 90s. Um, if you think the the Babylon, the prostitute is Jerusalem, then you're going to clearly date it before 70 AD. So the problem is Domitian's name isn't written in there. Nero's name isn't written in there. Jerusalem's name, the new Jerusalem is, but 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 the, the pre-70 Jerusalem isn't yeah. written in there. Rome isn't written in there. So depending on your approach to the book is really going to affect that as yeah, well. Yeah, okay. No, that's that's really handy. So it wasn't wasn't too uh, I, I will say this. Uh, I don't as I don't think the dating really matters. No. Uh, for this book, some for certain books it certainly does. Sure. But for Revelation, I don't think as long as it's in the 1st century everybody agrees with that. Yeah. Um even if you don't think John wrote it, but I don't think yeah. it really matters for the message. Thought it'd be a little bit of an interesting add-on. Um <laughs> what kind of literature is it because I think that's fairly crucial to to work out because uh, you you see quite a lot of different literature or different kind of writings in the Bible and um, that in my mind, and we've had little bits of conversation on, on hermeneutics, but it would actually um, would help on uh, what kind of literature it is and how to interpret it and how to take it. It's prophecy. Prophecy. Because yep. that's what it says it is. Oh, cool. 
<laughs> oh, goodness. Oh, where is it? It's uh, da -da, verse 3, chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy prophecy <laughs> yep there you go i mean you can't get any clearer than that it has affinities to ancient letter writing as well um beginning with verse four you have the general introduction of a letter john the the, the author who the recipients are um usually a grace and peace uh some kind of yep. a blessing and then it ends like a letter as well yeah obviously many people have labeled it an apocalypse um apocalyptic literature yeah um that's quite anachronistic uh which is when you take something from our culture and superimpose it upon an ancient culture that genre of apocalypse was not there was no genre apocalypse in john's day sure um all the scholars agree but they've they've identified certain features of certain various pieces of ancient literature and literature and they've created their own genre hmm. um and the reason revelation is usually referred to as apocalypse is because that's the very first word of the book it's in greek apocalypse or apocalypsis which just means either revelation or my favorite unveiling i like unveiling. to it's, it's an, an unveiling that's really cool uh, so no i think that's pretty pretty helpful context so i guess the crucial question for me is that um that we need to answer in this book is how much of this actually applies today? And, and you were starting to get to that. How much of it applies today? And, how, and um, how do we even work that out in the first place? Because how I understand it, and you even said it, it's written to seven churches, at least for a decent part of it. Mm -hmm. um, so how much of it is purely for them? And how much of it is for us? Broad question. So go for it. Yeah, it is, it is a broad question. <laughs> it's a good it's the right. It's one of the right questions. There are many right questions. So it really depends on your approach. I'll give you the four basic approaches. And those who adhere to each approach have, have come to their decision. Well, some have made their decision beforehand, but most of them come to their decision after reading the book. So you do want to, you do want the book itself to sort of tell you what is appropriate for you and what is not. But let me give you an idea of the four broad approaches and how they're understanding it. And, uh, and then I'll tell you where I'm at as well. So the first is the preterist approach. This is the, pr the predominant approach in the academy. Um, so most professors and scholars are going to adhere to this. They relegate everything in Revelation to the first century. So in that sense, everything has to do with things that John, in John's world, either Jerusalem or Rome um, or emperor or the, the various religions, it all is, has to do with that first century, mm. which then means it don't mean nothing for us. <laughs> you know, it might be helpful in some area, but it's not directly applicable to anybody, um, anybody here. I don't, that, you know, I think it has to be relevant to the seven churches I mean, you've got a problem if you go the opposite extreme, um, which is the uh, some forms of the futurist approach, which say, come chapter four, everything has to do with the distant, distant future, the time right before Jesus returns. Well, in that sense, then it doesn't really affect much of my life today. I'm just looking out for Jesus to come. Yeah. Um, there are multiple versions of the futurist approach. That one is more the classic dispensationalist approach. You have the amillennialist approach, um, which says most of it happens between the ascension and the return of Jesus, but certain aspects happen at the very end. Uh, the historic premillennialist approach, which is similar to the amillennialist, that's where I'm at. Um, and then you have the the idealist approach, which says it's just giving you theology. 
And therefore, okay. it's, 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 it's very relevant. There is good, there is evil. Make sure you're on the side of good and don't actually look for any of this to be fulfilled in our world or lifetime. Um, that's going to be the most um, discouraging for many of you because you read it and you're like, well, he's clearly predicting stuff that's happening. It is prophecy. Yeah. <laughs> How can you say nothing is happening? It's just giving me good theology. Yeah. Uh, and then the last approach is, is the one that you were describing, the historicist. The historicist believes everything is happening in their day. Yeah. All right. Or at least it's been happening throughout history and it's going to culminate today in their day before they die. So this is where we were talking earlier. Um, they, those who hold to this position are, you, uh, are sometimes labeled the crazies uh, because <laughs> when it comes to all the wacky things, you know, basically the Trump and the bowl judgments, they're trying to discern, all right, you know, okay, this, this, this is like the F-16 fighter pilots. This has got to be a bomb. Um, this has got to be a microchip and it's all going to happen in my <laughs> lifetime and Jesus is coming back in my lifetime. And so the problem with that is so far, 100% of the people who take this perspective have been wrong because so far Jesus has not come back in the lifetime of any of the people who take this approach. Mm. But it's certainly the most exciting yeah, um, it's certainly the most exciting, um, and it definitely preaches preaches really well. Uh, yeah. Seventh Day Adventists hold to this approach more than anyone else. Yeah, okay. That's they are really very big historicists. Um, now, as you'll see, I, I I do think there is a fair bit that is relevant for and related and actually happening today. Sure. But they would say everything is going to happen by the end of you know my Some lifetime. Whoever time. the my is, my lifetime. So, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. So yeah, so it kind of depends on on your approach. Um, and then letting the the text hopefully guide, yeah, guide you into the the approach. So, what approach did you 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 briefly mentioned it? But what approach did you end up kind of going with? Just so we know how to navigate. So it? yeah, in case you want to Google it, or um, I can give you a couple couple of good sources that um, that adhere to this. Um, so the approach I adhere to is the historic premillennialist approach so basically the basic fundamentals of that approach are the reason it's called um, historical premillennialism is because george ladd who coined the term uh so george ladd or ge ladd um he he believes and through his research that this is the approach that the earliest christians adhered to hence historical and it's a premillennialist approach so you have that weird thousand year reign of jesus in chapter 20 um so Basically, we would say that is going to happen after Jesus returns, as opposed to, say, an amillennialist who believes we're living in the thousand-year reign right now. Um, so we believe the thousand years begins after Jesus returns, but some key distinct distinctions between us and other futurists um, is we don't see two peoples of God. Um, there is not the two peoples of God, Israel and the church, there's only one people of God, and that's those who repent and put their faith in Jesus and believe in Jesus, whether they happen to be Jews or Gentiles. So that is a, a distinction of historic premillennialism. Um, we also see a lot more symbolism than uh, more, of a more of a dispensationalist, classic or progressive dispensationalist. So we're going to the thousand-year reign. Could be a literal thousand years. We'd say most likely thousand is, is common terminology and you see it elsewhere in revelation for a really long time so it's going to be a very lengthy lengthy time i'm all right if it's a literal thousand but we're going to see a, a bit more symbolism than some other futurists do yeah those okay so you'd in some sense you'd see that obviously it meant something to those seven churches at the time but it 
still it has applies to. today. Correct. You can't you can't say it has no meaning to the seven churches. So, and there's two ways to to remove meaning from those seven churches that have been done. One is to say everything from chapter four to the end doesn't happen to the distant, distant, distant future, uh, which means, okay, all seven churches are struggling. How does this letter help them? <laughs> it doesn't. It doesn't give them any insight into their struggles. It just says Jesus is coming back at the end day. And that's great. And that might help them to a degree. But as you'll see, I think it actually addresses their specific issues. The other way is to say chapter chapters one, two, and three is written to the church. Chapter four through the end of 20, some people would say the end of 21, is written to the Jews. And then chapters 21 and and the 21 and 22 or just 22 is written to both Jews and the church. Wow. And so now you, and, and so the churches are clearly got Gentiles in them. Uh, and so now you've actually said the bulk of revelation is only for Jews. It ha- is irrelevant and has nothing to do for, wow. for those who, for gen- non-Jewish people who believe in Jesus. And so that will, well now, what? <laughs> I can see how it'd be quite confusing for people that are trying to work this out of navigating all these different views so i guess um how would you navigate knowing what applies only to first century and what applies for us today yes so i'm i'm really going to let revelation take the take take the lead on that but there's going to be there's a, there's a key principle that sort of helps me figure it out and this isn't going to be a shouldn't be a surprise to anyone it's the gospel do you know what Jesus did on the cross. Mm. And do you understand what happened directly after that? So do you understand why he died? Do you believe in the resurrection? And do you understand what happened when he rose um, and ascended to uh, ascended to the right hand of the Father, his exaltation? Mm. That is going to be really key, uh, in my opinion, because um, these ideas are going to come up various places throughout Revelation. It's also key to see what is written about Jesus in chapters 1, 2, and 3. Mm. So clearly the seven churches existed um, in the first century, and there's a lot of really interesting things that are said about Jesus. For example, I'll just read you one that I think is is quite uh, quite important. So the very last church, allowed to say chapter 3, verse 20 uh, Jesus says I'll start with the verse you all probably know behold I stand at the door and knock if anyone hears my voice and opens the door I will come into him uh, and eat with him and he with me the one who conquers I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne all right so 2,000 years ago Jesus has claimed he has already conquered and he is currently at that point, 2,000 years ago, sitting on his father's throne in the place of authority, in the place of rule, in the place of power. Mm. That was 2,000 years ago. These concepts and others creep, uh, crop up again in key places within Revelation. And so if you relegate them, and I, I can bring one up, but if you relegate it to the distant, distant future, well, now you have the, some theological problems, especially salvation soteriological problems all right if, if jesus isn't ruling if jesus doesn't have authority um if we if salvation does not come to us now well there, there's a bit of a problem there's mm. a bit of a problem yeah, there yeah. um and so understanding 
the gospel and what is actually said in Revelation clearly about the first about the first century yep. helps us understand what's what's going on in the in the future. Yeah, okay. Now that's really good. Would you think I guess how would you sum up the actual if you had to sum up the message of Revelation? I know there's a lot in there, but is there some sort of uh, overarching kind of story or uh, theme that's kind of going on in it to yeah. help us navigate that even more. Most most scholars, and this this transcends approaches a lot of the time, uh, recognize that discerning the purpose of Revelation, which is always a good habit, by the way, discern the purpose of any book of the Bible. Uh, discerning the purpose of the revelation of Revelation should be and most likely is found um, in the messages to the seven churches. Mm. Uh, and, and I agree with that. And then it actually echoes the, the rest of Revelation actually conforms to this. So the purpose of Revelation is to exhort those, chur- those churches and any, any Christian who reads the book. Again, to him who has an ear or to the one who has an ear, yeah. let that person hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Um, and and the, the, purpose, the exhortation, it is an exhortation. You could even say it's a command remain faithful to Jesus. Mm. And you say, well, well, what is what is prompting that? Go back through all, all seven messages and you'll notice that every single church is struggling with faithfulness. Every single church. Mm. Two of the churches are struggling well. They have not compromised in any way. The second and the sixth, I forget the names. The second and the sixth church. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's easy to remember. It's the second first, second. It's the second one and the second last one. Um, they're not. They're not condemned for anything. Yeah. They have been faithful. But why are they? Why are they being commended? They're being commended because there is there's 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 pressure on them to be unfaithful to Jesus. And all the other churches are actually being. They're, they're faithful in some ways, except for um, a couple of churches. They're faithful in some ways, but they are unfaithful in other ways. And you look at what's giving rise to their unfaithfulness. There's a number of things persecution from persecution from slander all the way to um, physical harm all the way to death um, so so you've got that sort of persecution going on uh, they are being um, tempted to be unfaithful through uh, through idolatry so religious compromise um, as in all right I, I still believe in Jesus I still worship Jesus, but I am making idolatrous compromises. In the first century, what that looked like was giving incense to another god to get on, you know, to be able mm. to not be hindered or hampered in in the life. I mean, worshiping gods was just a part of life, yeah. and the guilds that you were a part of, you know, even when when the the emperors. Emperor's priests came down. You had to offer your incense, otherwise you, you get arrested. It was a very adulterous place. And other churches, and this is the interesting one for Laodicea. Laodicea, and I think this is very, um, I think Thyatira and Laodicea are the two churches most. We're going through the same struggles that they are. So, yeah. so Laodicea, their issue is actually wealth. Oh. They, they are. Their, their problem is they are rich. And the richness isn't the issue. It's where they've gotten their wealth from. Um, you don't find out in the letter. You find out later. But you know they're getting their wealth from somewhere they shouldn't because Jesus actually tells you, he says in verse 18 of chapter 3, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may be clothed, so you may clothe yourself 
um, and the shame of your nakedness might not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes. So um, they say in verse 17, you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. And then Jesus says, you actually don't realize that you're naked and you're pitiable and you're poor. So they've gotten a lot of wealth. Yeah. They're doing really well for themselves, but clearly there has been a compromise. Somehow they've been unfaithful to Jesus in their gaining of this wealth. And then the Thyatira church is is dealing with idolatry as well, but they're specifically dealing with the issues of, that uh, that come up with Babylon, the, uh, the prostitute. Um, and that includes not only idolatry, but also... Um, all the things we would label vices from actual sexual morality in its various forms to theft, to murder. I'm not saying they were murders, but these things we consider vices yeah. um, were going on in the Thyatira church. So there's various different ways of being unfaithful. They are being unfaithful, but every church is struggling with unfaithfulness. And then um, all of Revelation is... So what is Revelation doing? If I can say this, I think this is really important. The rest of the book, starting in chapter 4, is unveiling says that term revelation <laughs> it is revealing or unveiling what's actually behind the the faithfulness or the the faithfulness struggles hmm. what's actually behind the persecution what's actually why going to a certain place to get your wealth is wrong why just throwing a little incense even if you don't believe it is wrong and is causing you to be unfaithful so all the revelation and is is dealing with what's it's pulling back the veil to the world we cannot see. So Revelation presents the world as two, I like to use the term, realms. There is the earthly realm in which we inhabit, hmm. and there is the heavenly realm in which God, Jesus, angels, um, the devil, uh, Satan inhabit. And I can, I, I can, dis you can discern if you actually believe in these two realms really easily. Uh, the, the the series of questions is. Do you believe um, that Jesus died and rose again? Yes. Do you believe he ascended to the right hand of the Father? Yes. Do you believe he's alive today? Yes. Do you believe he has a resurrection body today, like scripture says? Yes. All right, take me there. Take me to him. I want to give him a high five. <laughs> I want to shake his hand. Yep. I want to sit down, have some noodles with him or something. <laughs> you can't do it. Why not? Because he's in the heavenly realm. He's somewhere where we cannot physically access. Now, we have access to that realm through prayer, um, but we don't have that much access. Whereas Jesus and all the inhabitants of that realm have a lot more access to our realm than we do to theirs. And so what is being revealed or unveiled, it's what's actually behind all of the pressures and the temptations to be unfaithful to Jesus. And so he's revealing that. He's also revealing and unveiling that Jesus is going to win in the end. <laughs> And you better make sure you pick the right side and obviously mm. pick the side of Jesus because he will win in the end. Yeah. Um, all of our enemies are going to perish. Mm. And if we don't want it to perish with them, we need to make sure we are faithful to Jesus. And so yeah. that's the purpose of Revelation. That's what the whole book is doing for us. That's why, and as you'll see, it's relevant to these seven churches in their situation but it's also relevant for every church until and every Christian until Jesus returns. Yeah. Um, so part of it is revealing this is your struggle in the here and now, and then part of it is revealing, hey, here's how they're all going to die. <laughs> yeah. No, that's that's yeah. I'm really happy that you yeah you know, we were able to kind of overview that in many ways because there is such a there is a hope to it, but there is a 
a really good message to it. And uh, that's predominantly what I want people to, to know about this book is that you don't have to get caught up in all this uh, craziness like I did growing up, um, but there actually is some sort of really beautiful message to this. Um, so I guess in your view where uh, Jesus comes back and, and then reigns for a thousand years, um, could you explain that just a little bit more? Um, what that entails or um, what the Bible would show us about that? Sure. Um, I, there's <clears throat> there's two. I, I, I'm very sympathetic to the amillennialist position, to be honest with you. <laughs> um, but there's, there's two key things that have caused me to reject that position. One is how the book of Revelation and really the rest of the New Testament describes Satan, because remember, he's going to be bound. And the other is the allusions or are the allusions to the Old Testament found within that passage. So fun fact, just about every verse in the entire book has an allusion back to the Old Testament. Wow. <laughs> so Revelation is very, there, there are two, two ways to approach interpreting Revelation. First, it's very self-referential. So you need to look at what, have the whole book in context and remember what is said about everything and everyone, which is it's why. It's a small task, you know, it's a nice and easy. It's a big task. If you were serious about reading, studying Revelation, I'll say this. If you, if you're like, you know, what, I really, really, really want to read it. My advice, you're not going to like this, would be read Revelation, just the book, once a week for a whole year, then start studying it. Wow. <laughs> All right, because you'll be able to keep the whole thing in your mind, in your head a lot, a lot easier. So what is said of, of Satan in here? Chapter 12, he is called, which is the big Satan chapter, uh, by the way. This is the most, chapter 12 Revelation is the most, is, is the largest portion written about Satan in the entire Bible. So if you yeah. actually want to study Satan, this is the book to go to. <laughs> um, don't get sucked in too much, though. <laughs> So, um, so chapter 12, where am I? I'll start in verse nine. The great dragon was thrown down. By the way, um, spoiler alert, this all happened at the ascension. All right. When Jesus ascended, well, we'll get to this later. When Jesus ascended, that's when Satan was thrown down. Um, and that becomes really key. Anyway, so he was thrown down, uh, that ancient serpent. By the way, ancient serpent. Who, what serpent does that remind you of? Anybody? The Garden of, sorry? Oh, in the Bible, in the Bible. Genesis, yes, there's a serpent in Genesis. Yes, yes, yes. Sorry, I didn't phrase my question too clearly. <laughs> yes, I meant we're in the Bible. Anyway, the ancient serpent is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver. There we are. So it is in verse 9. The deceiver of the whole world. Guess what? The churches, the seven churches are struggling with deceit. Uh, the Pergamum church, the Thyatira church, it's explicitly stated. Uh, they're struggling with deceit. Uh, the whole world is being deceived. Everybody who does not believe in Jesus, by the way, has been deceived by Satan and the beast, which is his Messiah, hence anti-Christ, anti-Messiah. Anti um, that's confirmed throughout the rest of the New Testament. He's deceiving today. The amillennialists say we are currently in the millennium. The millennium began when Jesus ascended into heaven, but we have a problem uh, because in chapter 20, verse 7 of the, um, of the text when it's speaking of the millennium, it says this, And when the thousand years um, are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations 
that are at the four corners of the earth. Uh, I should actually go a bit earlier, um, chapter 20, verse 2. They seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil. There's that ancient serpent again, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit. I shut it, sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. Mm. You can't tell me. I mean, Revelation has already told me that Satan is deceiving people now. If he, his, his, him being bind is so that nobody can be, de- be deceived anymore. We are not in the millennium, ladies and gentlemen. Right. All right. <laughs> Deceit is everywhere. Are there any false religions out there? Yes. Deceit. All right. Deceit <laughs> is everywhere. He's not bound. He is, to use Peter's terminology, he's prowling around or like a roaring lion seeking yeah. to devour. Um, so, so it's got to be in the future. Revelation presents it as coming right after Jesus. In chapter 19, Jesus slaughters all, all of the armies of the world that have come against him. He's cast the beast and the false prophet into, into the lake of fire. So they're already being tortured for all eternity, so they can't affect anyone. The, the Babylon, the prostitute, the city of the beast has been destroyed. So all the major enemies are gone, all right? Uh, the way I read it, it's just the armies that have been gathered to, of the world gathered together. So there's still some people who have somehow survived the apocalypse um, that that that's, that that are going to be during this that are going to be ruled by Jesus and the saints um, in, during this period. And you have these allusions. The ancient serpent is the clearest one back to the Garden of Eden. So here's what I think is going on. The question is not. The first question is, is Jesus going to reign for a thousand years or a really, really, really long time after he arrives? Yes, I, th- I think so. I don't think that's the end because it's only after this that Satan is destroyed. Um, then the new Jerusalem comes down and we enter into enter into this this ultimate paradise forever where there is no more ever sin, deceit, anything. So why the allusions to to the Garden of Eden and why do I bring it up? It seems to me that we've that the thousand years is going to be another garden of eden Hmm. we're going to enter the world is going to enter into the state of a garden of eden where god justly rules his people and walks with his people through jesus all Hmm. right he's going to do that where there isn't going to be any lies there isn't going to be any deceit um there's the serpent's been, been been thrown out it's just like the garden of eden and then just like the garden of eden the ancient serpent enters the picture again. And what happened when the serpent entered the picture Picture in Genesis 3? He deceived all of humanity, mm. <laughs> which consisted of two people. He deceived Adam and Eve um, into disobeying God. What happens when that ancient serpent gets, gets released? All the people who have lived under the good, great, righteous rule of God just like in the Garden of Eden, experienced how good it was, experienced the blessings. <clears throat> Excuse me. As soon as they're given the opportunity, they rebel, just like Adam and Eve. So I think that, that this period happens for two reasons. Number one, I think it is it happens, and I think it's really going to happen, to show us that we do not want to go back to an Edenic state. The God, that's not what that's not God's goal. God's goal is not to bring us back to the Garden of Eden. It, it's 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 to progress us further. We need a better state of existence than the Garden of Eden, um, because given the opportunity, we're going to we're going to go astray, and so that's not the state we want to be in. Hmm. Um, number two, I think it actually justifies God's the eternal eternal punishment um, 
of of the wicked, which a lot of people have a lot of problems with, and I, and, I, and I get it. You're like, you just did it for a lifetime. You, you know, you, you, okay, so I, so for my seventy years of existence, I rebelled against God, and I have to suffer for a lifetime. Well, what does this? What does the Garden of Eden prove, and what does this millennium prove? It proves that after these people have lived on the good, righteous rule of God, Jesus, for a super long time. I'm happy to say a thousand years. A thousand years is a super long time. <laughs> All right. It's a, <laughs> it's a really long time. That given the opportunity, they will stray and they will rebel and they will cast their lot against Jesus and God every single time, given the opportunity. Um the, the great thing about us is we've chosen in this lifetime to put our faith in Jesus. And so we have chosen Christ, um, which is the, the right decision. So that's what I think is going on with the Garden of Interesting. Eden. Uh, sorry, with, 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 the, with the millennium that you don't... Um, I haven't read that anywhere, but that's with the illusions combined. Yeah. Um, it, makes, it makes a lot of sense to me. Hopefully it makes a yeah. lot of sense to you. So. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um. I kind of wanted to get onto a couple of just like nitpicky questions that people often have and even I have, but I wanted to kind of go on what is uh, the Antichrist? What is that actually referring to? Ah, what or who? Yeah, some people say it's a what, some people say it's a who. So it's pretty easy if you're, if you're, if you're a preterist. If you're a preterist who believes it's all in the first century, you're looking for analogies to first century things. So usually... A preterist would say uh, Babylon is Rome. City, city, makes sense. They would say because the Antichrist tries to receive all the worship for himself, um, he is the emperor because the emperors, uh, depending on the emperor you think, some emperors were really all about worship me uh, and some emperors <laughs> downplayed it but still still allowed it. Yeah. Um, I'm aware I have a microphone so I will not scream and shout. <laughs> um, and and then they would say the false prophet is usually either false religions or or, or you know the, the I don't know something like that. Um, it doesn't that seems too small for me. So here, here's the question: chapters twelve and thirteen. So fun fact: the term antichrist is never used in the book of Revelation. In case you did not know that, it's never used. But there I do think go. it's appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Matt and I were talking yesterday, and uh, and I told him he like, already knew the answer to this question. He did. He did. Anyway. But the antichrist is in there. So chapter 12, you have Satan, all right? Um, in chapter 12, verse 5, Jesus ascends into heaven. When he is ascended, he is then cast down. Uh, uh, when Jesus ascends, Satan is cast down. Not only is that what's happening sequentially in the text, so your distant, distant futurists would say there is a multi-millennium time period between verses 6 and 7. It, I mean, it's just not there in the text. There's just no... <laughs> multi there's no multi thousand year gap in the text that i that i see but the theology is is the real kicker um but so we got to understand what's going on here and then I'll, I'll quickly get to the antichrist it should be pretty pretty simple so the war arises between michael and his angels and satan and his angels the term angels is used and that used there and he is cast down and we're we're given the reason beginning in verse 10 through um, through verse 10, 11, and 12. So let me read it out to you. And this should all sound very familiar to you based on your understanding of, uh, of Jesus, although some of it might not, but definitely your understanding of salvation. So verse 10, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, quote, now the salvation, 
and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. When did that happen? When did Jesus, <laughs> when, when, when did God, when did, the, when did salvation come? When did the power and the kingdom of God come? Jesus seems, I think he said that the kingdom came, came with him. At least it was inaugurated with him. When yeah. did Jesus receive the authority of God? When did he receive his authority? Well, we, we already read in, in chapter 3, the church of Laodicea, he, he's sitting on the throne already. Yeah. So this all happens at the ascension. When Jesus ascended on high, that's when he sat down and is going to make his enemies his footstool. Yeah, there's references to Psalm 110. Um, I mean, this is, this is language the rest of the New Testament uses of what happened at Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. Yeah. And then it says, For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them, this is Satan, who accuses them day and night before our God. So G, Satan has two functions in the Bible. He is the deceiver of the world. That's to use a, a Johannine term. Um, and he is also the one who accuses God's people. Where There's two places in the Old Testament where Satan is accusing God's people. Um, I realize this. I'm not going to have anybody shout out, but no. <laughs> think about where are those two places. One is super familiar to you, Job. What is Satan doing? He's going throughout the world. He's accusing Job to God, basically saying the only reason Job worships you is because you've put a hedge of protection around him. You bless him and you bless him and you bless him. You know, basically give anyone all the money they want, all the possessions they want, a wonderful wife, a big family, and uh, clearly they're going to worship God. Um, so he's accusing, basically accusing uh Job of only loving God because of the wealth and the possessions. And then Zechariah chapter 3 is really fun passage. It's more fun to me. Um, you have, he has a vision. Joshua the high priest is standing before God and Satan is there accusing him. Now here's what's really interesting. We know what Satan's accusing him of because you're, all right, are you, ready, are you ready to see how sometimes your English translations are, <laughs> uh, tone down the Bible? In your translations, it says he's standing in filthy garments. He's not standing in filthy garments, ladies and gentlemen. There is no dirt on poor Joshua. He, that term that's used is the word for feces or mm. poo. He is Lovely. covered in poo, <laughs> in feces, just Drenched in the Stinky. stuff, drenched in the stuff, which has made him cultically unclean or ritually unclean, um, and he cannot be in the presence of God. And so Satan is there saying, you have to kill this person, all right? Kill him because he is unclean and he cannot. you cannot stand before God if you are unclean, either because of your sin or because you've come in contact with something that makes you unclean, be it death, a dead person, a dead animal, um, a, a, a feces is, is one, yeah. uh, ladies, your, your monthly cycle is another, uh, these things make people unclean and you cannot stand, um, before God. Uh, if you have an open wound, blood, you can't, you can't be sure. touching blood. Yeah. So anyway, so he accuses us of, of our sin. Well, what did Jesus do when he died? I mean, this is the basics of the gospel, right? He took care of our sin. Yeah. And he sits next to the, so he sits at the right hand of the Father um, as as our advocate or our priest. I know I'm drawing it out. I'm sorry. Uh, so so he he's the one who's our advocate. So if we do sin, it basically this is the picture I have in my mind. He just tells God, oh by the way, Adam's cool. I, I took the punishment for him sin. He's clean. He's got the Holy Spirit. So what does Satan have left to accuse us of? 
Nothing. So why would he ever be allowed in the presence of God again if that's his job? He wouldn't. So, it is, so John is making a point. The accuser of our brothers who accuses brothers is an inclusive term of God's people, who accuses God's people of their sin night and day, which he could do before Jesus came. I mean, clearly God rained down judgment and wrath on, on, on his people all the time for their sin. Um, so he has no more job. So he's cast down to the earth. He can no longer enter the presence of God. The verse 11, and they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb. When did Jesus? When did that happen? Oh, we got the yes, yes, and the word of their testimony. So now that you understand conquering Satan means dealing with your sin, so he can no longer accuse you. You know, oh, guess what? That happened back when Jesus, uh, when Jesus uh, died, uh, yeah. for they loved not their lives um, even unto death. So you're already seeing how this is applicable to the church and us as well. So then you get to chapter 13, and what happens? You then have the sea beast who is raised up from the sea, and the dragon, uh, Satan, gives him his power, his throne, and great authority. What did God give Jesus when he ascended? Oh, that's right. Jesus is sitting down on the throne of God. <laughs> he has his power. He has his authority. Oh, my goodness. You can see why he's called the anti-Messiah, right? He pretends to be the Messiah. The beast even has a head wound that killed him and he came back to life. Who else do I know died and came back to life? <laughs> that back came back to life. That was Jesus. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. So what's going on is Satan is parodying, he's mimicking, he's trying to deceive the world through mimicking God, the Trinity, God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. You have the dragon who pretends to be the Father. You have the beast or the Antichrist who pretends to be the Messiah, and he's the one who's trying to get all the worship. Who are we supposed to worship? Jesus. And then you have the false prophet or the land beast who's later called the false prophet in chapter 19. What is his job? His job is to get everyone to worship the beast. What's the Holy Spirit's job again? It's to get us to worship Jesus and to get us to believe in Jesus. Oh my goodness. So you see what's going on here, right? Yeah. Um, so who is the Antichrist? Well, what do you believe about Satan? Is Satan real? Is he an ontologically real being who exists in the heavenly realm yet has influence on our earthly realm? I think so. Hmm. Throughout church history, that's been that's been the belief. Well, Satan was cast out of the presence of God with all of his angels. All right. It makes the most sense to me that this is one of his angels that he has given all of his his authority and his power to, and the false prophet is also an angel. I don't think uh, this is going to be an actual person. Uh, this is an angelic being because you read what's going on. I don't read it all. Read chapter 13 and what is said of the beast. He deceives everybody throughout the world, everyone who's not written in the Lamb's Book of Life, i.e. those who believe in Jesus. He, everyone in the world, it's everyone except for those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, Christians, Everyone in the world worships the beast. Everyone. Everyone. And his reign started at the ascension of Jesus and ends when Jesus returns and, kill, and throws him into the lake of fire. All right. So I have this Antichrist who uh, Revelation presents him as existing before him, but received all of his power and became the Antichrist, just like Jesus existed. Now he's not. He, he's not pre-existent, but um, yeah. anyway. So you have you have this being, this Antichrist, who ha, who received all his power at the time Jesus ascended, when the Satan got thrown down, who is 
deceiving the world and, and is active until Jesus returns. So he's been active for at least 2,000 years. Now you're starting to see the re relevance, hopefully, for us. Um, and he, everyone, and through that time period, everyone worships the beast if they don't worship Jesus. Hmm. It doesn't make sense. It, uh, the only way to make sense of this is if he is an angelic being, just like Satan. It's the only way to make sense. Yeah. And so how do we worship? How do we worship him? Well, essentially, everything anybody who doesn't worship Jesus is is worshiping the beast. Um, so all false religions are part of, are part of beast worship. Um, basically, you de, de facto, if you don't worship Jesus by de facto, uh, you you automatically are worshiping the beast. He is the one you are serving. Yeah. Which means there's no middle ground. There's no line you're straddling. There's no fence, fence sitting. You know, there's no true atheism. You are serving and worshiping the beast if you are not serving and worshiping. Always worshiping something. Can't Jesus. serve two masters mm -hmm. type of deal. Exactly. But now we know the significance. So this is what's being unveiled to us and revealed to us is these are the powers that are at work and all of the struggles of the seven churches, everything that is causing them to be unfaithful to Jesus is a result of the activity of Satan, the Antichrist, which is the sea beast, and the land beast, which is a false prophet, and Babylon the prostitute, which is the city of the Antichrist. They are at work behind the scenes. We cannot see them, but they have influence on us and influence on our world. And they are the ones that are moving the pieces that we can see. They're the ones moving the kings and the cities and the nations and the people who hate us and, and slander us. They are the ones that are, that, are, that, are, that, are, that are tempting us to compromise our faith to either get along in life or to obtain riches and power. They are the ones who are tempting us to 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 live lives how we want, mm. uh, to be sexually promiscuous, um, to you know the big the big issue is homosexuality and sex before marriage and so forth. That's a result, as we read, of of the beast and and uh, Babylon the uh, the the prostitute. So this is the real enemy. Mm. These are the real enemies. It's not. I mean, he talks about the Jews to some of the, the Jews are persecuting some of the churches. It's not the Jews. It's not the Jews. And, and, and these small compromises, you're putting your foot in the other camp, in the other city. And Jesus is saying, be careful. Mm. Remain faithful to me. Because if your foot is there, when you die or I come back, you'll be destroyed along with the city in which you've inhabited, either the Babylon or the New Jerusalem. That's really good. I actually think I want to give a decent amount of time for a reasonable amount of time for some questions because I'm sure there's a lot of questions. I think that's a good... Uh, spot. I'd love to keep going to, but a good spot to end this part of the podcast. Um, so we're going to do some Q and A, guys. Now, so you would have seen one of the the slides behind us uh, on a, a website called Slido, and there's a, a number there, and you can actually anonymously, or you can put your name if you really want to. Um, put your questions in and you guys can vote on the ones that you want uh, to get asked and then we'll be able to do that. Um, for those of you watching this at a future time, if you uh, found this helpful, uh, please share it around. We we want other people to, to get amongst this stuff and actually benefit from it. We don't want to be famous, but we want others to benefit from it. Uh, we're on Spotify, we're on Apple Podcasts and all the major platforms. So, Adam, thank you so much uh, for that main talk. That was really, really good. Uh, a really big topic to cover, uh, but I'm looking forward to some of the questions to come. So we're going to take a five-minute break and um, we'll go through some of these questions. Excellent. Uh, thank you. Awesome.